Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Monday, September 10th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Kishore Hari. Indre's off this week. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. All right, it's time. I've avoided this topic for many, many years, but we have to talk about the reproducibility crisis. And I know you're about to turn off this podcast because reproducibility is this huge inside baseball issue in science. But let me give you some facts. American taxpayers spend about $30 billion annually funding biomedical research. But some estimates point to over half of the studies generated by all that funding cannot be replicated, either due to poor experimental design, improper methods, or just bad statistics. Now, that's not saying the science is bad. It's just the analysis and the paper might be bad. Bad science doesn't just slow the progress of science in general. It can spell delays, if not doom, for millions of patients waiting for cures. This week, we go in-depth on the reproducibility crisis with NPR science correspondent Richard Harris. Last year, he came out with a book called Rigor Mortis, How Sloppy Science Creates Worthless Cures, Crushes Hope, and Wastes Billions. And Richard and I kind of have a frank conversation about where all of this goes wrong and what incentives can be created to correct all of this sloppy science. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Richard Harris. Today's episode comes from Google Play. Did you know that you can now download and listen to audiobooks on Google Play? That's right, with hands-free listening using Google Assistant or Chromecast, you can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte, no subscription necessary. There's even multi-device integration across the Google ecosystem, which is great for a person like me that uses Android on his phone, that has Android Auto in his car, that has a Google Home in my living room. That means I have seamless enjoyment of my audiobook picking up right from when I left off in every room in my life. And for a limited time, you can get $10 off your first audiobook over $10 by visiting g.co slash play slash minds. That's g.co slash play slash minds. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. Today's episode is brought to you by Mother Dirt. Modern hygiene has led us to believe that removing the bacteria from our body is a good thing. 
but that's not the case. Our skin, much like our guts, needs good bacteria to thrive. Mother Dirt's AO Plus Mist restores a good bacteria that once existed on our skin naturally, but has been wiped away by modern hygiene. Mother Dirt's patented ammonia oxidizing bacteria work by consuming the ammonia in your sweat and producing beneficial byproducts for your skin, bringing balance to your skin biome. And I've actually tried it. It's a great product. It makes my skin glow. 60% of Mother Dirt AO Plus Mist users are able to stop using deodorant altogether, and 66% of users find that they take shorter showers and cut an average of two and a half products from their routine. Right now, Inquiring Minds listeners will get 20% off and free shipping with the code MINDS. Head to motherdirt.com to learn more and get 20% off and free shipping with code MINDS. Plant the seeds of healthy living and nurture your nature at motherdirt.com. Richard Harris, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Nature did a big survey back in 2016 uh, about whether scientists think we have a major reproducibility crisis. And something like over 50% said yes. And a number quibbled below that. But it's hard to get scientists to uh, 50% of scientists to agree on much of anything these days. So that number struck me as a really big number. Can you tell me a little bit about reproducibility both in terms of its origins and how scientists view uh, this, whether it's a crisis or not. Yeah, well, uh, I think these have been issues since science was invented. And I actually do not like the word crisis. I think that's a, a misunderstanding of what's going on. I think what this is, is an awareness of how big an issue this is. And I think scientists have been, uh, you know, plodding along, doing their usual thing, using the techniques that everyone else uses and so on, and assuming that all was good. And it's only been uh, in in recent years where people started to reflect on that and ask you know, are the things that we assume are good ways to practice science really all good? And the answer comes back a pretty resounding no. It, there are reforms that are needed. And uh, particularly uh, where, where I focus in is uh, what's called preclinical medical research. It's it's uh, science that's conducted in laboratories on animals and cells and so on. Um, and and in, in that circumstance, people put out a lot of material and a lot of it cannot be reproduced when other people try to, to pick it up. And of course, that's a cornerstone of science. That's something you ought to be able to do. Yeah, that in and of itself isn't surprising. I mean, science at its best works in this in this series of of trial test repeat but what has what has shifted over the last few years because the conversation of it becoming being a bigger issue has really emerged on the scene yeah, well, I think one thing that has changed a lot is, is yes, science is, is not perfect. And if every experiment worked and was published and, and everybody else could re repeat it, it would be a pretty boring experiment because science is supposed to explore the frontiers, right? And so if you're, if you're on the ragged edge, you should get things wrong sometimes. I think what has changed is recognizing that there are a lot of uh, uh, results that don't pan out. And it's not because it was a just because it was bad luck or whatever, but the experiments weren't designed very well. People did not take some very basic steps. For example, uh, you know, uh, Richard Feynman once said uh, that really the goal of science is to uh, 
make sure that you're not fooling yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. And so you're supposed to do things like blind in experiments. So you don't know uh, which is the control group and which is the group of, uh, you know, the, the, of animals, or whatever, that's getting the active ingredient. And uh, if you if you know those things, then you can unconsciously bias yourself. It's not deliberate, but but these sorts of basic steps um, have have not been practiced very much. And the other really big issue has to do with the statistics of science. Uh, people have assumed that uh, there was a per, uh, sort of a magic threshold where something becomes significant. It's called a p-value. And I think uh, biostatisticians have, have become increasingly concerned about how poor a measure that is about whether something really is going to pan out or not. And there's a big push to say, you need to run experiments with, with more uh, uh, subjects and you need to run them more carefully and you need to look for for higher degrees of of this p-value to make sure that you really are getting significant results. So um, I think as as people started realizing that these issues were cropping up and and that a lot of things that were, were not reproducible because people were because the original experiments were not conducted very carefully. I think that's really where the focus is now. How can we think more carefully about how to design and conduct experiments uh, so that uh, so that you know we can minimize the the number of, of or at least reduce the number of experiments that that turn out to be false false steps false alarms I want to come back to some of those ingredients that are making for uh, these experiments to go, to go awry or at least the conclusions from the experiments go awry. But but I want to back up a second and say, do we understand the scale of this problem? And uh, is the scientific leadership aware of the scale of this problem? I think the leadership is aware. If you're talking about Francis Collins, who heads the National Institutes of Health and his chief deputy, Lawrence Tabak, they've been writing about this in alarming tones in, uh, in Nature and other top journals saying, you know, the system is broken. It needs to be fixed. Uh, how big a scale it is, it's, that is a much harder to question to answer. But there are a lot of different lines of evidence that suggest that about half of what gets published in the biomedical research literature, this is the preclinical stuff, not, not trials involving human beings, but about half of that stuff is probably wrong and uh, will not stand the test of time. And that's that's a pretty that's a pretty big number, and I think you could you're you're obviously never going to drive that down to almost nothing, but you but you but you should be able to reduce that sub substantially if you uh, think more carefully about what methods you use and what statistical tests you apply. You're being very careful in saying that this is preclinical work, and and just to give our listeners a picture, like you know this area of biomedical research is is a mix of like privately funded groups, academic groups, uh, pharmaceutical groups. Is there an area that this is more centered in uh, amongst that group, uh, that sets of groups? I think there is, and I think it's actually an academic science. And the reason for this is that the rewards are very different in academic science than they are in like pharmaceutical companies. If you're in an academic lab, you are rewarded for having an exciting finding that gets published in a high-profile scientific journal like Science or Nature or Cell. That's kind of the coin of the realm for you if you're trying to build your career, get more grants, and so on. And so the incentives are not to get something right necessarily, but to get something flashy that you can get published. And uh, and I and I think that drives a lot of these behaviors uh, that 
where scientists say, well, what can I do? You know, instead of saying, well, maybe I should do one more experiment to see if I'm actually wrong, uh, they may stop at that point and saying, well, I have a very exciting result. I'm going to publish it now, and then maybe I'll do the follow-up study. And if it turns out not to be right, uh, you know, I still have my fabulous publication, and that's really what I'm rewarded for. Now, if you're working for a pharmaceutical company or a biotech company or something like that, your results better be right because you are, A, trying to get FDA approval for some product, and so all of this is going to get looked at very carefully by the Food and Drug Administration and federal regulators. But also, if you're wrong, what happens is you may your company may have spent hundreds of millions of dollars on a drug that's not going to work, and so that's money down the drain. So the incentive system is completely different there. So they tend to be much more cautious uh, uh, in their in in their experiments, uh, not necessarily as creative, but uh, that's not what they're out for, right? They are trying to really determine whether something works or not, and and so that that is a that that is a substantial difference. And as to your other point about distinguishing between this. Uh, preclinical research and research in human beings, I think that's actually an interesting part of this story because back in the 1990s, um, a lot of these problems were also uh, taking place in clinical medicine, in studies involving human beings. There were a lot of small studies, very dubious results, not not enough uh, participants to really get a very solid and believable result and so on. And that whole literature and that whole process was, was a mess. And there were a few people who really recognized that uh, we need to clean this up. And and actually, there's been very substantial progress made in trying to make sure that when you do a, 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 an experiment or a clinical trial involving human beings, that you have enough of them, that it's that it is it is well thought out, that it's blinded appropriately, and all of these things to uh, to limit this sort of we're fooling ourselves kind of problems that crop up in on the laboratory scale. So I, I and I think that's that's worth dwelling on a little bit because what we have here, is a pattern of success. And some of the people who are looking at some of the problems in preclinical research say, you know, there were things that were done in clinical medicine that really made a difference. And if we can figure out how to import some of those ideas and practices into this other realm of science, we can clean this up too. It's not, it's not magic. There are, there's a, there's a, a history behind how this has happened and we can, we can do our best to, to replicate that history. From much of the last few years, this conversation about reproducibility has felt like an internal conversation amongst the scientific field itself. How important is it, do you think, for the for the public writ large to understand and be involved in this conversation? Because if you're suggesting 50% of studies may not pan out, that's a lot of money that they're investing through their tax dollars that isn't going to fruitful work. That's true. And I think the other thing we see often is people are reading exciting results in a newspaper or what, hearing them about them on TV or so on. And it turns out that, that a lot of what they're being told turns out not to pan out, not to be true. And and that's uh, I think that's also a, a, a consideration that people need to understand that when you hear something, you ha- you, you should bring a, a level of doubt to it just, uh, just because it's science in the first place. So no, no single study is the last possible word. But some of these studies are actually... Uh, uh, kind of they're designed so weak that we really shouldn't put very much salt in them at all. But yes, it absolutely is an issue for taxpayers. Uh, the NIH budget is now well over $30 billion a year. Um, not exactly, can't exactly say half of that is wasted because uh, certainly it's not evident from the get-go which experiments are panning out and which aren't. And even ones that don't 
pan out, there still may be some value uh, that can be extracted from them. But the point is, we're spending an awful lot of money on this. And, you know, it's an interesting time in Washington, D.C. with um, with what's going on politically. Uh, to, to answer your deeper question about, you know, how, you know, how important it is for public involvement here, it's not evident to me that that this is ever going to be an issue that's going to be on the front burner of what the public cares about. And even if it is, it's not necessarily an issue that they would be able to convince uh, their elected representatives to focus on. So I think by necessity, a lot of this is going to get fixed uh, sort of behind the scenes. But I also think that, you know, sunshine is always good. And I think people who care about this, these issues or care about, you know, how taxpayer money is spent and how science is progressing should know about this. And, and I, and I've, I feel that my book has been out there uh, trying to, you know, at least get the conversation going in academia and in sort of this broader world. And it, it clearly has done so. I, I don't think, I'm, you know, that I'm I, people are not picking up my book in, pitch, in one hand and a pitchfork in the other and marching down to, you know, the Capitol and saying, we have to fix this right now. But, uh, but you know, it's, it's part of the democratic discussion, for sure. I don't think that's the goal of any popular science author, that image. But uh, but but your point is well taken. Uh, let's dig into, you know, what are the pressures that are actually causing this, uh, you know, quote unquote, bad science to happen? How much of this, just to get something out of the way, how much of this is just bad actors, like people that are are being fraudulent in their work? As far as we can tell, uh, very little of this is actually deliberate bad actors. Uh, most of this is sort of uh, standards that are just not very high, and that people people look you know down the hall and see what their colleagues down the hall are doing, and and they'll adopt those standards. And so you know, so if there's sort of the sense of well, you know, you use you use three mice per experimental arm because everybody else uses three mice per experimental arm, and that's good enough. That's the kind of thing that is happening more than uh, more than deliberate mischief. As, as far as we can tell, uh, clearly those cases of fraud do exist, but uh, they're a small fraction of a percent as, as far as anyone can tell about what's going on here. So you're suggesting a, a bigger issue is bad design of these studies, either not enough you know, sample size to, to really create a meaningful result, or they're, they're using bad methodologies and uh, protocols that may not yield the kind of conclusion that that's being reached why is that propagating so much like wh why do we see labs do that because i imagine the people running those experiments that's not their intention yeah nobody wants to get up in the morning and do bad science as i as a, a guy named malcolm mcleod who's a scientist in scotland told me as i was reporting the book but uh, but people uh people don't necessarily think that much about uh, sort of outside the box about you know there are there are deep traditions in the way fields operate and if if you're do, running experiments in a particular field and everybody else is using mice you're going to use mice but maybe mouse maybe the mouse model is exactly the wrong model for that experiment and you're not necessarily thinking about that or if you are you might say well gee if I if I try to do this in a different animal species the paper will get rejected because people will say well that's the wrong species we don't study uh, guinea pigs we study mice for this disease and so on and so, so there, some of these are just sort of bad habits that get picked up. Again, not deliberate. It's just kind of the momentum of the field. I think also uh, a lot of this is driven by 
individuals, young scientists who are trying to make a mark. A lot of the research that go, that takes place is actually done in the hands of a postdoctoral scientist, somebody who's gotten their PhD and is trying to, uh, you know, build a career in science. That's a tough road because uh, probably about 12% of these people in, who get these postdoc will actually end up on a tenure track job, which is kind of what everybody wants. So it's a, it's a very cutthroat world and even highly talented scientists uh, uh, don't make the cut. And, and so it, it sort of comes down to you have a few years in somebody's laboratory and you've got to get fabulous results or your career uh, is going to take a very sharp turn. And so that kind of incentive is just, is just baked into the process. And it's not that someone says, well, I'm just going to do whatever it takes, but people start seeing what they want to see uh, in their experimental results as opposed to sort of stepping back and and maybe being a little bit more skeptical or so on. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm certainly not an expert in laboratory techniques, so I'm not going to go out there and say that people are just using, you know, terrible laboratory technique. But I think that it is the case that uh, scientists aren't necessarily thinking through these things as carefully as they can because the incentives are not there uh, for them to do that. This is one of those incredibly thorny subjects in academia, thinking through the incentive models for scientists, because it pokes at training and tenure and uh, money and it and status. And so it's deeply intertwined with with history and some external pressures that the university faces. And I, I think one of the things like after working at a university for for decades is that most universities that I've seen are small C conservative in a lot of natures. They they do usually don't change big structural elements like this quickly. Is that your observation in reporting on this book as well? And do you see hope for change around any of these incentives? Uh, both. I, I agree with you that universities tend to be very conservative. And, you know, universities really want their scientists to go out and bring home the federal research dollars. So whatever works, uh, if, if their researchers are bringing in the dollars, that is how they measure success, even if the studies that they're producing with those dollars are, turn out not to be that helpful uh, in the long run. So so the incentives for the universities are also a little bit askew. But there is hope. And, uh, and actually, I... I am seeing some changes as a result of this of this sort of soul searching. Um, one great example is uh, I was talking to uh, Steve Goodman, who is at uh, the Stanford University Medical School, and he was talking about the fact that he'd been asked to write a letter of recommendation for somebody who was up for tenure, and he started doing the the usual thing, which was reviewing a bunch of their. Uh, uh, journal articles and talking about how many things he'd published or that this person had published and so on and, and doing sort of the quantitative stuff. And and his letter was kicked back and they said, Dr. Goodman, what we really want you to do is focus on, you know, get away from all this quantitative stuff, which is unfortunately far too often how uh, scientists get picked for tenure or whatever. And, you know, tell us if this person is doing good science and, and you know, let's get let's get beyond the sort of, you know, how many papers did they publish in Science, Nature, and Cell? Because we're de-emphasizing that at, at the Stanford Medical School. And 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 Dr. Goodman was thrilled to hear that that his own institution was was starting to, you know, uh, change its culture about how it thought about this stuff. And you know, Stanford is a is a, is a leader here. And it, obviously, not everyone will follow quickly, but it's it's very gratifying to see that pattern happen. I was also up at Cornell University uh, about a year ago, and had a number of really thoughtful conversations because this really, this uh, up at Cornell, 
Cornell because a lot of people at Cornell were thinking about this and asking themselves institutionally, how can we do this better? So, so this, so this conversation is is taking place, and as you say, it will not yield change quickly. But there, you know, I can point to evidence of change, and that's that's gratifying. How much do you see the open science movement uh, being able to shift all of this, uh, both in the context of of shifting away some of the reputation power of uh, some of the journals you mentioned to a, um, let's just say, a, a cheaper system or a more open system, but also sharing data and protocols along with the papers themselves? Yeah, I think that's an, an important element. I don't think it's going to be utterly transformational, certainly not all by itself. But I think the idea of, of encouraging openness is, is fabulous. Uh, I think it because one thing it does is it, it shortens the cycle. If you if you make a result uh, available, uh, say, as a preprint, and then you make your data available and your and your computer code available so other people can go and reanalyze what you've done, uh, two things happen. One is you you take probably an extra 10 or 20 minutes to make sure that you're uh, that you're not going to be caught out making a mistake at that point and uh, and I think people think more th- thoroughly and carefully about what they're saying if they know that other people can check on them so easily and and the other thing is if it turns out to be wrong uh, that shortens the cycle where people discover it I mean there there are many examples of of ideas that have persisted for years and years and years because people were chasing after a bad idea before somebody said you know let's do the architecture typal experiment. Let's do the experiment to find out whether the, the premise of this is correct. And that experiment gets done and it turns out the premise was wrong. And and all those people have wasted all that time. So so I think the open uh, movement is is very helpful uh, in this regard. And, and uh, but it's you know but it's only it's it's one piece of it. It's not going to solve the cultural problems who we were talking about earlier. But it's a uh, but it's it is an important element overall of the of the success uh, of the strategy for success here. I mean one statement that I've heard uttered as another element of this is is science publishes too much. There's just simply too much out there. People can't even read all the stuff that's being published anyways. So should we just as a whole system publish less, especially in biomedicine? I would say yes, if we could. But you, again, you have to change the system of rewards because you can't tell somebody that you're going to be judged on how many papers you're going to be, uh, you know, you're, you've published as part of your, you know, judging whether you should be getting tenure or whatnot. But, but I, absolutely, I think that scientists should uh, ideally publish fewer papers and do them with more care. Because if you're going to do a, a study that involves uh, more experimental subjects or more cells or whatever it is, it's going to it's going to take you longer uh, to do that. And it's going to take more time. And it's going to take more money. And so therefore, you are going to end up doing fewer studies. For my money as a taxpayer, that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see fewer studies, but done with greater care. But again, you have to change the incentive systems uh, for scientists to do that. I think if you did, scientists would be delighted to say, okay, I'm going to do, you know, I I'm going to be more careful. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, you know, put stuff out that I'm more sure is going to be correct. And I, and you know, I think everybody wins, but you have to change the incentives first to make that happen. So one of the things that I struggle with with the with this entire arena is is the external pressure of we need science to go faster. We need cures now. We need to uh, fight against disease that is emerging onto the uh, onto the scene. We need to accelerate. And it seems like you're urging science to to slow down in a way, or at least be more cautious um, at a time when the public seems to want m- more and more 
uh, more results quickly. How do we balance those two interests in order to produce quality science? Yeah, well, I don't think the public really wants to see, you know, doesn't care if there are a half a million or a million uh, papers published in the uh, in the in the literature every year. I think that uh, uh, I think what people want to see is more meaningful results. And so, you know, the public doesn't care if one lab is going to produce, you know, five papers instead of 10 uh, in a given year. If if one of those five is is a very meaningful paper that can move a field along. But we've seen the result of of this sort of hectic uh, pace of publication there. You know, we it's not as though it has led to amazing advances in, you know, understanding and treating Alzheimer's disease or a lot of these other conditions that we're that we're confronting right so uh, so i don't think that that's a uh, i agree there's a, there's an irony here that uh, uh, that you need maybe need to slow down but you know there's also that old time slogan haste makes waste and i think that uh, we're seeing an element of that happening here how do we know if we're making progress along this this route because as you said this issue has been around for decades and we're seeing sunshine on it right now but it's not like it's new. And how, so how do we know that we can make progress about this? And what are some markers that are indicative that progress is being made? Well, one thing I would look at is um, what percentage of clinical trials fail. The, after, after all of this is, uh, happens in the laboratory and with mice and so on, people come up with an idea for a new drug, and that drug then goes into clinical trials and, and is tested in human beings. And right now, about 90% of those clinical trials fail. They don't, uh, the, the drug does not work. And uh, some of that is clearly because the underlying idea was not a strong underlying idea. So if you started that pipeline with stronger underlying ideas, with 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 a deeper understanding and with a more credible starting product, uh, you know, I would expect that you would see a higher percentage of clinical trials succeeding. So I think that's one number that'll take a long time, but that's one number that I would certainly keep an eye on. Are are we doing that? And that actually has a big influence on drug prices, by the way, right? The pharmaceutical companies say one reason they charge outrageous amounts of money for pharmaceuticals is that so many things they try to do fail. So they have this high failure rate. Uh, if 90% of clinical trials fail and the 10% of drugs actually succeed, those 10% of those drugs then have to pay for all of the failures they've had. So if they could increase their success rate, uh, in theory at least, uh, if if this were a, a, a true economic system, which subject for another day uh, that 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 would at least reduce their their uh, opportunity to say drugs are so expensive because we have such a high failure rate but in principle it could also bring down the cost of drugs if uh, if uh, everyone was on a level playing field you know, a cynical reading of this entire story would say that uh, that science is broken in, in in some way but the book reads much more optimistically about um, the capacity to correct these problems. And you sound much more optimistic given what happened in the clinical field uh, over a decade ago. Why are you optimistic and what do you hope to see over the next you know, 10 years in regards to this reproducibility issue? Yeah. Well, I'm optimistic because I think that scientists want to do the right thing. They don't want to spend their career chasing things that 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 fail. I think that they, you know, they're dealing with some incentives that unfortunately uh, push them uh, in the wrong direction. But people are starting to pay attention to those uh, those perverse incentives and thinking about how to fix them. So so that's a reason for optimism for me. And I, and I, and I, I'm 
I, so I think that, uh, you know, and as we mentioned earlier, there are signs of progress. There's things that are happening along those lines. Uh, and with attention focused on a problem, um, you know, that's the first critical step. Uh, again, this isn't a crisis. This is an awakening. And so once you are aware and awake to an issue, um, if people do care about this issue, and I believe they do, then they can really start thinking about, you know, how do we fix it? And there are there are people in my book, like uh, Brian Nosek and Arturo Casadevall uh, and, and Carolyn Compton, who thought really deeply about these things and are saying, you know, I'm redirecting myself. I'm going to think about how to how to how to fix the system. So it's great to have those 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 thought leaders, those those heroes out there pushing away um, and and making a difference. It's always good to start with an image of carrying a book and a pitchfork, but still end on an optimistic note. <laughs> Richard Harris, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. You know, Richard and I actually kept talking well after the interview was done. And I have to say, he's really optimistic about the future of science and fairly optimistic about the path that it's taking. He just sees this correction of either weeding out some of this bad science or just publishing less as being critical to science having a bright future that accelerates cures for so many patients out there. I myself have always saw reproducibility as this sort of tough thing. It is something that is massively important inside of science, but I've always been wary of talking about it publicly because of the potential risk of undermining trust in science, which I still think remain, should remain high based on the ethics, the morality, and generally the output that we've seen created. All that being said, I think it's important for you, the listener, to hear this um, straight from somebody who spent years um, working on this issue, because inevitably, reproducibility is going to worm its way into mainstream coverage of how science is funded and into questions about whether or not we should keep funding science. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us on this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lingren, Michael Galgool, Stephen Meyer Awald, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of the show. Find us on Twitter and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Kishore Hari. Indre will be back soon. See you next week. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.